0: I can't remember a guest that engendered more reaction, more feedback, more curiosity, more fervent debate than Jack Cashill. Now, if you want to talk about a subject that is um, really polarizing in some quarters, then bring up the issue of TWA Flight 800. Well jack is something of an expert on that then you want to talk about something that generates heat if not necessarily light whenever it's brought up let's talk about the issue of race and then you want to put the cherry on top of a polarizing controversial discussion then let's talk specifically about george floyd well The last time that uh, Jack Cashel, who is an author, a blogger, an editor, written dozens of books, he's uh, collaborated on a dozen more, a Ph.D. from Purdue University, the last time he was on the show we tried to do the impossible and tackle all three of those issues in a relatively short amount of time. So we had to have him back. Uh, I don't know that we need to revisit the TWA discussion again but uh, there is certainly still a lot to explore on the issue of race, especially white flight and the George Floyd incident specifically. Jack, welcome back to the program. Thanks again for staying up late with us.
1: Yeah, hey, uh, Frank, uh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, you know what's interesting about my uh, career uh, is that uh, until uh, the internet. Emerged. I really wasn't a, an investigative reporter because I just didn't have the resources. What and were you, once, by the way, Jack, before that? I was working uh, largely in advertising then. Hmm. although I have a, you know, a Ph.D. in American Studies. But what I found out quickly is that uh, white males are not the top of the hiring hierarchy. And I just didn't want to work in an institution or a system that was going to discriminate against me entire my entire career. So I just switched to something where meritocracy was still prevalent, and that was advertising, actually. And so I was writing and producing and uh, doing – doc, doing uh, and then with the Internet emerged and the information became available, I was able to switch to making documentaries and writing books. Um, and the, what I discovered quickly is that the media, uh, the major media, left all the big stories on the table because they were too sensitive. And that included virtually any story that had anything to do with race. And thus, uh, you know, when I, I did my most recent book, which out now, now is uh, Untenable, the true story of white flight uh, from America's cities, I realized that uh, this is a subject that for 60 years had been subjected to one lie after another. And the demonization for 60 years of the people who were the victims of white flight, not the, not the perpetrators, uh, so it was a kind of a fertile field and And when I started talking to people, I realized and this is amazing, Frank, when you think about it, is that for sixty years all for all the literature that's been written about white flight, all the you know the common denominators about white flight, no one of consequence bothered to talk to the people who were involved, and no one bothered to ask them why they left, right? Well, I want to... I I pres-
0: I, I, let yeah. me let me back up, Jack. I want to get to white flight in a moment and continue the discussion that we had, but I want to follow up on something that you said just a few minutes ago, and it's it's something that I think a lot of white males in various competitive fields can relate to. You talked about your experience being, and uh, I don't know that you used the word, but I'll use it, you talked about your experience being sort of discriminated against from an employee employment perspective. And I think a lot of people, I've known many people in various different fields that feel like they've been in the same boat. Now, a lot of the writing that you've done, whether it's Untenable, which we're going to talk about in a minute, or the George Floyd case, which we're going to talk about in a few minutes, it seems to kind of defend what what would be the position of white people. And there are going to be some people in the audience that say, well, look, clearly Jack resents the fact that he was discriminated against. And now he's cherry picking data. He's cherry picking certain analyses to use this as an opportunity to get back at the um the forces racially, culturally, politically that discriminated against him. Anticipating that question, Jack. How would you respond to that?
1: Well, you know, it's uh, I've always considered myself something of a realist. And, you know, I'll just give you how definitive this circumstance was. You know, when I was getting my Ph.D., so was my wife. Fortunately, I was married to a woman, which was great uh, because if I was married to a guy, I'd have been doubly screwed at the time. Uh, (laughs) But I went, you know, I was uh, staying with my mother uh, at a housing project in Newark, New Jersey. So in terms of all the, uh, the the metrics that might qualify you as first to go to college, you know, uh, my mother didn't go to high school. You know, uh, poor working class widow, et cetera. I took a bus into New York to go to a hiring convention, and I escorted my wife to a because she had lots of interviews at this hiring convention on the you know like the upper floor of a Manhattan hotel, and then on the going down, I got on a elevator with a black guy and a white uh, woman, and they were talking about how many job interviews they had lined up. She had eight, he had 14, all the males in my department collectively had zero, including me, I had none. And it was by the time I hit the lobby, I realized I had to find a new profession. Uh, They were openly discriminating against white men 50 years ago in academia. Now it's in the last post-George Floyd, It's across the board in corporate America. You know, something like only 6% of the hires of the last two years in corporate America were white men. I mean, it's, you know, it's a crazy stat, but apparently it's true. Uh, So it's not a question of retaliating because actually – I did much better at advertising
0: than in academia. Uh, well, that's and, fair. Uh, I, I, I don't, I, I don't <laughs> doubt it. All right. So, Jack, let's uh, remind people of what the basic premise of white flight is. Uh, so you have a situation where a lot of America's uh, cities, even places that are uh, considered heavily minority now, places like Detroit, Rochester, Newark, New Jersey, they went right. from being primarily white, uh, Italian immigrants and their descendants, uh, Polish, Irish, Jewish, Russian, to being, uh, primarily black. And even sometimes it's not even whole cities, but it's certain neighborhoods that are, um, it, within sub- suburbs. Roosevelt, Long Island, for instance. Now, one of the things before we get to why the white people left, one of the things that gets pointed to as why these cities became more diversified initially is the uh, Fair Housing Act signed by Lyndon Johnson in the late 1960s. Lyndon Johnson talked about what he was hoping to do with fair housing.
1: Fair housing for all all human beings who live in this country is now a part of the American way of life.
0: It was, it was, it's been described that that legislation that Johnson signed provided for housing opportunities in some of the cities that I just alluded to. Is that, is that accurate?
1: Yeah, I think, it, I mean, it was a factor, but, um, you know, when I talked about in the in my book were the, uh, the white ethnic cities, uh, the ethnic cities in Northeast, North Central United States, I mean, I grew up in Newark, but when my parents bought a house uh, on our Newark block in 1954, it was already integrated. It was well integrated. Uh, It was probably 10 percent black at the time. Uh, Our next door neighbors were black when we bought. Now, the. uh, uh, What moves what motivated people to leave, though, and I'll give you the standard orthodox uh, take on white flight. And no one did it better than Michelle Obama. And she's much in the news now because they're talking about parachuting her into the convention in 2024. And her view of this is so, it's all progressive boilerplate, but with an angry edge that the kind of distinctly angry edge that Michelle brings to any racial topic. So she's just speaking at a forum a couple of years ago, Obama's summit with her brother. There is with her Craig mild mannered, nice guy who's two years older. And she says, um, to, uh, she's explaining her background. And she said, when respectable families like ours, and she looks at Craig, good, hardworking, respectable families, as soon as we moved into the neighborhood and we moved into our neighborhood, white people just moved out. And she goes, you're all running from us and you're all still running from us. And she said, they, they objected, the white people. And she's speaking to a liberal audience and she's saying, you're all running from us, you're still running. She said, you objected to the color of our skin and the texture of our hair. Well, that story is false in every detail because Michelle Obama herself was engaged in black flight. The reason she ended up in that neighborhood is because she was escaping the neighborhood that she hadn't in, uh and the school she had gone to because of the problem. And the problem wasn't skin color or hair texture. The major problem was crime. And the secondary corollary problem was the chaos that comes with crime and what comes with fatherless homes and that manifests itself in schools. So Michelle Obama as a you know when she first started school was living in a neighborhood uh, that had a brand new public school. Her neighborhood when her parents moved in 15 years before that was good. I mean it was a uh, you know a good solid middle class black neighborhood. By the time uh, Michelle was ready for the first grade, which was about 1970, uh, they had the housing projects there. the the kids were were chaotic. Craig went to the public school for two years, and Michelle's mother, uh, Marion Robinson, said, no, this won't do. And so she committed a Class C misdemeanor for two years. She drove her children to a school 15 minutes away using her sister's address because she didn't want them to go to the to the black school. This neighborhood she moved to had been Jewish, but the Jews were fleeing pretty quickly because unlike, Catholic, unlike Irish, unlike the Italians, the Jews were totally dependent on public education. Not only that, but they had very high standards of public education. So when those schools started to uh, slip into chaos, they really felt like they had no choice but to leave, especially when they're getting their homes broken into and you know, uh, all the other things that come with uh, transitional neighborhood. In the first day of first grade, Michelle goes to this new school, which is now largely, you know, when she started two years prior, it would have been half white. By the time she gets there, it's largely black. Some kid punches her in the face, day one, first grader. That doesn't happen in most schools, you know. But she sticks it out through the eighth grade. Uh, But then when it comes to high school, Mrs. Robinson, again, thinking of her children, as she should, you know, like any protective parent would do, takes a job so she could send Craig to a Catholic high school, even though they're not Catholic, to pay for the tuition. And then they send Michelle to a a new magnet school, and at more than an hour from her neighborhood, it was mostly white or Hispanic. So she's been running from black neighborhoods all her life, and then she has the nerve to turn around and stigmatize and insult and scold white people. We're doing exactly what her family had done. And that's the maddening part of of white flight.
0: And, so uh, wh- when it comes to the flight of white ethnics from America's cities and people wonder why uh, these white ethnic residents would leave these neighborhoods that they loved and where they met and married their spouses, where they raised their families, where they worked, where they well, went to the local bar, cheered the local team, went to all the local parks and recreational activities. The conventional wisdom, basically, is that it was due to racism. There was a, a documentary uh, that uh, people can watch on uh, the YouTube. It's, uh, it's called How White Flight Really Started. It's a short mini-documentary. It's, it's put out by a group called Unstripped Voice, and they describe a phenomenon known as blockbusting. It was
2: called blockbusting. Real estate agents preyed on the racial fears of white homeowners... To get them to sell their homes quickly for less than market value, the homes were resold to non-whites at inflated prices.
0: One of the women in this—well, they would. Say, one of the women in this documentary, I believe, a white woman, talked about you know her experience in Roosevelt, Long Island, and that's where Howard Stern is from. He's talked about the difficulties sure. uh, being there as well. Is what she said.
2: Well, they would say. You know, we're having black people move in.
3: Now, I will give you cash if you want to sell me your house. Do you want to stay with black people next door to you? And that's the way it went on.
0: And uh, as Bunny said, a lot of the people just said, yes, I'll take the money and run. And your contention, Jack, and the, the the thesis of Untenable, the true story of white ethnic flight from America cities, isn't that these people all left because they were racist. They left for the same reason Michelle Obama's family left and Kanye West's family left and a lot of other black families left. They were not happy with crime and they were not happy with the schools.
1: Right. In, in fact, and just to... You know, I'm sure there were places where blockbusting took place. I read about it, you know. But I, I my family, I was among my childhood friends, like in the dozens of us. We were the only ones who were homeowners. Virtually everyone was a renter. They weren't affected by blockbusting. Plus, we went to Catholic schools. I think a lot of the neighborhoods where the blockbusting took place were Jewish because they tended to have a more money and more mobility. But they were also totally dependent on public schools. So, uh, and the Irish and Italian neighborhoods hung on much longer. The Italians were re- resisted; <laughs> they weren't going to. They, I don't know, an Italian neighborhood that got blockbusted, but you know, just I get the title of my book though. Just I was interviewing the people in my neighborhood who had never been talked to about this before, and um, I what I found is that they loved our neighborhood. It was a you know an urban working class neighborhood. but it was... With, with old mom and pop shots lining the streets, mixed housing, big apartments, small apartments, occasional single family houses, etc. And uh, I, I asked one friend who was the last guy on our block, the last of my friends to leave, uh, and I said, and he's a, he's a, he's also the rare Democrat. Most people who left left the, par- the party of their their parents. we all Democrats. And they became Republicans when they moved because they saw the forces that were working on them. And they saw that those forces were not their friends. But I asked my friend, I said, why did you and your widow mother finally leave our block? And so here he's arguing against interest because he knows what he's saying. Isn't going to be popular, especially with his wife, who's pretty woke. Uh, He says, well, Jack, it became untenable. And I said, well, Artie, what do you mean by untenable? What does that word mean? He goes, well, when your mother's mugged for the second time, that's untenable. When your home is invaded for the second time, that's untenable. And that's the story times a million, the real story, the true story of white ethnic flight from America's cities. And despite that, despite these, this uh, you know, unwanted diaspora, this scattering of people all across, you know, America. Uh, when you live in a city like Newark or even New York City, where the, where the close in real estate is too expensive, um, all the people I knew were scattered to the winds, 50, 60 miles apart, you know and, and these like you know, slapped together suburbs like down the Jersey Shore or out on Long Island, where, uh, where you know and every city has these uh, kind of makeshift suburbs thrown together to, you know, with you have a baby boom population, et etc. Some people really just wanted to have yards and garages. But it's a story of loss. It's a story of heartbreak. Uh, and in a lot of times, including in my own house, we lost, we got, uh, our house was taken by the highway. So we didn't even have a chance yeah. to get blockbusted. The whole, like in Newark, for instance, and this happened elsewhere, they leveled literally the whole neighborhood to build housing projects. They just declared it a slum, leveled it. sent something like, what was it, 3,000 homo- uh, you know, residents? Uh, 3,000 households uh, scattered, disseminated. Those people never were able to regain the kind of neighborhood coherence that they had, you know, in the 40s and 50s and early 60s. Gone. And and yet that wouldn't be bad. That's bad enough. It's as if you know the uh, the Cherokee in the Creek were sent on the Trail, uh, the trail of Tears. We're blamed for leaving. You know, we're scolded for leaving. No, they, like us, got eminent domains out of our homes. and uh, uh, But there's the trail of tears, and we feel sorry for these people. We feel bad. The diaspora, the great ethnic diaspora, went to the degree that anyone talked about it. It was to scold the people who were exiled. And I wanted to correct that record. And I've never had a better, more heartfelt, more... Uh, genuine response, uh, to any book that I've written. So and I have to untenable.
2: for an appointment or newbridgehealth.org. The
0: the whites leaving America's cities and not just the whites, but people like Michelle Obama's family and others, the uh, people that had been a part of these cities for a long time that fled, uh, you see actually a similarity to the American Indians that were displaced by, by American colonialism at the time.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, if you look at the, the trail of tears, I mean, it was an eminent domain issue. They got paid.
0: Right, right.
1: You know, I wasn't, I mean, they probably didn't want to leave. So they got paid. They they got sent on the trail, you know, just like the people in Little Italy in New York. Do, I mean, if they were property owners, they got paid.
0: Jack. They didn't want to go. Jack, let me ask you this. And if people have questions, we're going to try and um, take them if we can at 800 848 9222. That's 800 9222. So th- there was an increase in uh, black families moving into a lot of American cities. And you write that a lot of people chose to leave these cities because of an uptick in crime and a degradation in the quality of education and schools in these cities. A lot of people are going to say that you're essentially describing racism by any other name. These uh, these families ended up departing, those that may not have been eminent domain, because the black people brought with them – all this crime and a degradation in the quality of education in schools. What was it that caused the degradation of America's cities? What caused the uptick in things like crime and the degradation of quality of life issues?
1: Well, you know, I'll just give you a a specific instance from Newark, which is my hometown. Uh, And then I tell the story in my book of Sissy Houston, the mother of Whitney Houston, her father, in that first great wave of uh, from the the Great Migration from the South, like virtually all the blacks who came up then, came to the northern cities to work. These were two parent families, Christian to almost to a person, hardworking. They worked through the Depression. Her father did at a foundry, raised eight children, all of them you know God fearing, and they were they sang well too. So, uh, but then. And and, uh, Sissy Houston tells this book in her memoir about her daughter. She said, you know, she lived in this cozy little village in Newark. It was integrated. It was fine. And then she said, you know, she started seeing these families breaking apart, uh, the drugs coming into the neighborhood, the crime coming into the neighborhood. And then in Newark, we had the riots in 67. And then she says to her husband, John, she goes, we've got to leave. And so they moved to the suburbs. Kanye West's mother who lives in Michelle Obama's neighborhood. Uh, And when she wrote her memoir, said exactly the same thing. After Kanye got mugged and he had his bicycle tires slashed as a boy, she said, call it black flight, call it whatever, but we're out of here. And so it went across all races and creeds faced with this. And the real cause, which was totally ignited by uh, Lyndon Johnson's Great Society, was the subsidization of fatherlessness, the encouragement mm-hmm. of fatherlessness, and the breakdown of the family. I tell the story in, uh, in my book uh, uh, based on an, an account. I found all these self-published or um, unpublished books, one written by a guy who grew up in Columbus Homes, which was the housing project that was imposed to replace Little Italy. When he moved in, he's, he's a black kid. He's a family of like six kids. Uh, They thought it was the the seventh wonder of the world, you know, brand new appliances, everything works, heat in the the winter, you know, and uh, all, you know, maintenance is perfect and everything's great for two years. Milkmen, you know, housing projects, consider this. Milkmen made deliveries. Breadmen made, made deliveries. Doctors made house calls. And it's a fully integrated public housing project. And then he says, he says right in the book, he goes, I could see it happening. The, instead of having two paranuclear families move in, we're having welfare mothers move in. They couldn't control their children. And then the money that would, had been being used for maintenance and upkeep was now being used to replace broken windows and, and theft and all the light bulbs that were stolen. Crime exploded. Drugs exploded. So the, how come this Homes home opens in 55? By 65, it was unlivable. By 85, uh, it was gone. I mean, and then they blame the building, but the building wasn't the problem. The problem was the fact that the social fabric is fraying and no one was allowed to talk about it. And the great injustice we've done to black America is our silence. And this is both Republicans. Republicans are more cowardly, even than Democrats on mm. this issue. And this that leads into the whole George
0: Floyd side. Interesting. Just, uh, no one. Jack, let me get you to pause, and uh, if people are just tuning in, my guest is uh, Jack Cashel. His book, his latest book is uh, Untenable, The True Story of White Ethnic Flight from America Cities. It's available on Amazon and a lot of other places where books are available. I'll take your calls uh, with Jack in a moment at 800-848-9222, especially if you have a question, even especially if it's a challenging question. We'd uh, love to hear that rather than just a, a random comment or your thoughts on what Jack is uh, is saying. But essentially, as I read untenable, the reason so many people, not just whites, but people like uh, Michelle Obama's family and the uh, Whitney Houston family and Kanye West family, the reason they left America cities is because Jack offers some pretty compelling evidence, including. Discussions and interviews with the people that did the actual leaving that there was a a subsidization of fatherlessness which led to a decline in the social fabric and an uptick in things like crime. And uh, this is something that you really don't hear anywhere else and it's something that seems pretty well argued in the book. So I'd love to invite your comments and your questions specifically at 800 848 And then uh, we'll get into an equally uh, contrarian view of the George Floyd case in a little bit as well. This is The Other Side of Midnight. We'll continue with your questions. 800 My guest is Jack Cashel. Straight ahead.
1: Other side of midnight with Frank
3: Murano. And uh, now the end is near, and so I face the final curtain. My friend, I'll say it clear.
0: the great Frank Sinatra singing My Way. This is a, a birthday bumper music selection from Mike Latanzio. I don't know if he's still the commissioner of the New York City Softball League, but he was when I played in it. And uh, I will tell you, as the manager of my radio station's team at the time, he was a delight to deal with as, a, uh, as an administrator. And uh, by day, he's an attorney. I think he works in the I think he's an attorney, works in the New York City Corporation Council's office. I haven't seen Mike uh, in a few years because I'm not in that league anymore, but he's a great guy, and uh, wishing him a happy birthday. My guest is Jack Cashel. He is the author of the book Untenable, the true story of white ethnic flight from America's cities, and essentially he takes a... What I'm describing as a contrarian view to the uh, conventional wisdom as to why these cities, Newark, Detroit, etc., went from being primarily white, German, Italian, Jewish, to being primarily black. Uh, Jack, do you think that's a fair description, contrarian view of what the conventional wisdom is?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a concurrent view among people who uh, write books about white flight. Right, but uh, I have an advantage over them and I was there, you know. And when I was doing the book, by the way, the book is uh, in large part a memoir and it's really kind of a more upbeat book than the, you might think sure. given the topic. But, uh, and I had the, uh, for me, it was a great project because I, I touched base with at least 50 people I hadn't talked to in 50 years. So, uh just to get their take on it. And what I discovered, and this is the kind of the upbeat part is, is the word that kept coming up to describe our neighborhood in the fifties and sixties was idyllic. This is a working class in York neighborhood, you know, and no one would describe, you know, from the outside, it's idyllic, but it was so perfectly functional, harmonious and congenial. And it was, uh, it was very Catholic and it was centered around, it was mostly Irish and Italian centered around our church and school, and, and it just worked, you know, and it could have continued to work for the foreseeable future. You know, there's one, Frank, just one wrinkle, and this is sort of a, a thing that almost never gets discussed, is that in 1924, uh, Congress essentially banned immigration from Eastern and Southern Europe. And so uh, this the flow of working class or poor and working class people willing to take You know, menial jobs, and moving to those old neighborhoods dried up, but the flow from the South did not. So it it caused an imbalance that that led to the cities becoming blacker quicker than they otherwise naturally would have, and and it also allowed for um, us for people to stigmatize blacks as the poor, menial people, whereas you know in previous generations, the Italians, the Irish, etc. You know, in fact, I just saw this, this population chart of the of uh, the uh, Newark in 1835, and it said uh, white people uh, 15,000, Irish 6,000, right? But, you know, people had their prejudices. That's very funny.
0: So that's interesting, and and I don't think that's something that uh, a lot of people would immediately think of because you think of immigration restrictions now and you think that of that as kind of preserving traditionally white communities. What you're saying is that the immigration restrictions of a 100 years ago actually made the cities far less white.
1: That's right. And, That's interesting. Uh, and they, because they especially dried up uh, the Italian immigrant, which was heavy, and the Jewish immigration, which was heavy also. All right. well, uh, a lot of Let on Polish and Czech and everything else.
0: A lot of people are eager to talk with you. I want to uh, try and get as many questions in as we can. 800 848 Our friend David is uh, in the Bronx. Uh, David, I know you had some health issues. Uh, I'm glad you're up and at him again.
2: Well, I wouldn't say that. I'm basically homebound for the next four weeks. But um, But aside from that, everything's going great. Everything's gravy. Yeah. Yes. So um, to get to your guest, who, in my opinion, sounds like a very angry and bitter white man who thinks that (laughs) she has been stolen from him because of his skin color. But my question to you, sir is i'm 52 years old and have lived through white flight in the suburbs around new york city when we moved into a neighborhood that had seven houses two of which were black apparently Three blacks in the neighborhood was too much, and by the time we left, that neighborhood was completely black, and there was no crime. These were all middle-class black people, but because of concerns about property values and things like that, the neighborhood became all black. And the suburbs of New York, like Long Island, Massapequa, which is near where I grew up, they're 98% white, and they keep it that way. You're telling me that's a natural phenomenon, that there's no racism involved in the segregation that goes on in the suburbs outside of New York City and our other major cities?
1: I'm not, not, my book isn't the about the suburbs. My well, book is about you know, the people uh, white ethnic the neighborhoods in America's cities. Suburbs.
2: The people who left the cities moved to the suburbs because they wanted to maintain that lifestyle, and they've been working hard to do that ever since, much to the detriment of black people who try to live in those communities for the same reasons. Black people want better schools and economic opportunities, just
0: like everybody else. But if
2: they're forced to live in communities like Roosevelt. Or Amneyville or Hempstead—that's not going. David, to happen let me get let me them. get
0: Jack to respond, just because a lot of other people want to comment. Uh, do you have any thoughts on kind of what the ripple effect was on the suburbs because of all these families uh, departing America cities at the time?
1: Well, you know, the suburbs I concentrated on were the suburbs where working class people went, which were like fifty or sixty miles away from from in my case in Newark. Uh, they moved down to the Jersey Shore and to. To these scrub lands that were just being carved out of the pine barrens because they couldn't afford anything closer, but looking at the uh, suburban development, uh, I don't I can't speak to Long Island, and I will say this again is that Jewish populations were more susceptible because they did not have Catholic schools, they did not have private schools at all, and because they were um, they had very high standards and expectations um, but in, in our case. When people left their suburbs, they left uh, unwillingly, unhappily, and miserably. They moved mm. to places without uh, any kind of center, any kind of heart, uh, without a heartbeat. And it was an unhappy circumstance. And they didn't leave because they wanted to. When your mother gets mugged for the second time and your home gets invaded for the second time, yeah, you have reason to be
0: angry. And Uh, and that was the norm. Let me try and squeeze in (laughs) some more people, Jack, who want to chat with you. Larry's in Brooklyn. Hi, Larry. Yeah, hi. I just want to
1: know, outside of Michelle Obama, I'm wondering why you wrote the book. I'll tell you why. Because I grew up in Canarsie, which uh, I don't know if you included that in the book, but it was famous in 1969 for the school boycott. And I was caught up right in the middle of it, living a block away from the school. I saw all the reporters and everything. It didn't work. They held back the kids for a couple of weeks, and they had to go back. But isn't it obvious that they wouldn't make a spectacle out of their race, out of their, uh, out of their uh, racist? Uh, if it was a racist motivation, they wouldn't make a spectacle out of being racist. Isn't it obvious that they did it because of crime? I mean, people would advertise and keep their kids back and say, "Look at me, I'm racist."
0: Right. So, so Larry, where, wh- where's the, what's your question where's exactly? The
2: need
1: to write the, Where's the need to write the book? Because it's obvious that it's crime. I don't understand. It's- uh, no, you're right. Uh, it is obvious, but the uh, the people, I'll give you just an interesting example of one of the more sort of funny highlights I found. There was an op-ed in the New York Times written in 2017 by a woman who was a professor at Princeton and an expert on white flight. she just written some award-winning book on white flight. And uh, she wrote this op-ed uh, contemplating whether it was just Economics, or was it pure racism that drove people out of the cities? And, and then I go to the comments section. I'm figuring, okay, uh, these are New York Times people. They're going to be saying things like our first caller said. And I was a little reluctant to get into it. And then I opened up the comments, and it was story after story after story. New Haven, St. Louis, Philadelphia, Boston, uh, exactly the same story I was telling. And then person after person was saying, how could you possibly write a book on white flight without mentioning violence, crime, or schools, Mm. right? They were mystified. There were 800 comments. You know, I must have reproduced 20 of them in the book because they're from all over the country and they were saying the same thing. Now, it's not something, people don't, you're right, people don't want to be racist. They don't, by the 60s, there was no, cachet in northern cities and being racist it didn't advance your career you know or, or make you friends um you know i grew up rooting for the dodgers and the boston celtics i mean race wasn't a fact that it wasn't the overwhelming factor it was always a factor it was not something you ignored but it wasn't the driving factor in our lives i had black friends from the time i was a baby uh, I i went to school with black people from the time i was a baby um uh, and it was uh, the notion that we all just ran because we're afraid
0: is nuts. David is on Staten Island, and you know, before we go to David, I- I'll just mention. You know, I have a neighbor who is, uh, is Middle Eastern. You know, he's he's Arab, and he yeah. came, moved to our neighborhood from Brooklyn because his wife and young child were present in a park when there was a shooting. And basically they said, all right, we're done. We're moving to a place where you can go to a park and have a reasonable expectation of there not being a shooting. And it had nothing to do with the fact that uh, they were going from uh, a neighborhood that was uh, primarily minority to a neighborhood that was primarily white. It had to do with moving to a neighborhood where there were fewer shootings. Uh, David is on Staten Island. David, you're on with Jack Cashel.
1: I uh, would like to make one statement that a lot of it has to do with sexual attitudes when it comes cross-racing, or cross-breeding or whatever. And a lot of the girls are being harassed over a period of time, and I've seen it through the movies, et cetera. All right,
0: David. I, I don't know where that's going. All right, thank you. Mike is in- <laughs> Mike's in Brooklyn. Hi, Mike.
1: Yes, also the Immigration Act in the 60s changed a lot of these neighborhoods. And the welfare situation, all of a sudden the federal government was giving single mothers that had multiple husbands money for housing. Right. Well, for th- that's
0: exactly your thesis, right, Jack, that it's what the federal yes, government yeah. was doing that destroyed these families. Right. There's no need to be that's married. Exactly right? Uh, and yeah. if you could just get cash without having someone to bring in, uh, you know, a family's income.
1: Right. Because, you know, black families went from being about 80% intact in 1950 to being about Oh, 40% intact just 20 years later. And, you know, one stray kid in a block can wreck it. One rogue kid can wreck wreck a block. You know, two or three of them, you got a gang.
0: All right. Sean is in Brooklyn. Sean, you're on with Jack Cashel.
1: Love you. I'm going to make a quick song. If you can't feed your baby, then don't have a baby. The black guy sung that. Who was that? Right. Jack, you're 1,000% correct. I'm born and raised in Brooklyn. My grandfather had a store on Pickett Avenue in Nostrid, Frank. So you're absolutely correct. And it has nothing to do with race. It has to do with the way people feel in their home. Uh, Frank, if you move to Linden, uh, uh, if you move to Roosevelt, you come out in the morning, your tires are going to be gone. So would you move to Roosevelt,
0: Frank? And I want to tell that previous caller, the sick guy, where is he? Uh, what was his name, Todd? Uh, yeah. Well, just uh, keep your question for uh, Jack rather than okay, bring so it up to people to him, that can't bro. respond. Yeah. So I'll just make it quick. So uh, so he's so concerned about, uh, you know. Uh, All right, Sean, black... I don't want you to delve into what the uh, other callers are. Focus on what Jack is saying. Walker in New York City, what's your question for Jack?
1: Yes, uh, this is uh, regarding uh, the, the housing housing projects. It wasn't mentioned that because
2: of income limits the when it was integrated and people of middle income lived there they they had to move out, leaving low income people in the housing
1: projects and that's where all the concentration of uh poverty was. How come that wasn't mentioned well I, in fact, in the book, I talk about it a lot because i not only did we live in public housing once the highway took our house uh in Newark but uh I went back to Newark, and I was I worked at a high level for the Newark Housing Authority. What they did, and this was pretty, it seemed like they did it for the benefit of the people who lived there, but they went from having fixed rents, which were relatively afford- affordable fixed rents, to rent based on a sliding scale. So what that meant is that uh, the housing projects and uh, housing authorities ended up paying people to live there once you factored in utility allowances, and it, it encouraged everyone to cheat. It also encouraged families to get the old man out of the house because his income would only raise the rent. Mm. So there were so many uh, uh, you know, negative incentives built into the way the government distributed uh, its benefits that virtually every one of them Medicaid, uh, food stamps, housing, welfare they all put a premium on, on fatherlessness. They all made rewarded fatherlessness because the old man's income just uh, made people less and less, uh, you know, eligible for these various benefits. Jack,
0: i got to take one more break. We're going continue in a moment. 800 This is The Other Side of Midnight. My guest is Jack Cashel. His book is Untenable, the true story of white ethnic flight from America's cities. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead.
1: The Other Side of Midnight.
0: By the Psychedelic Furs. This is a birthday bumper music selection by a young man named Max Cohen, who is celebrating his birthday today. Former intern of mine at a radio station years ago, a wonderful guy. Glad he's doing well. Hope all his birthday wishes come true. All right. We are uh, spending our final few minutes with Jack Cashill, author, blogger, editor. His uh, latest book is Untenable, the true story of white ethnic flight from America's cities. A lot of people very eager to chat with you, Jack. So we're just going to have to get you to come back for another return engagement to follow up on our discussion on uh, on George Floyd. Uh, let me begin with William and Yonkers. William, what's your question?
1: What does Jack think that the destruction of the family was an unintended consequence of liberal naivete, naivete, or deliberate on account of the Cloward-Piven uh, approach? Uh, that is an excellent question, <laughs> and uh, I know what who Cloward and Piven are, and I know what they intended to do, and they succeeded. I think, though, it was largely liberal naivete. Uh, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, and uh, in this case,
0: it was very well paved. Pamela is in New Jersey. Hi, Pamela.
3: Hi. um, Quick summary. My parents got married in the 50s. My dad grew up in a town next to Patterson. My mother grew up in Patterson. Her Syrian Christian girl was her best girlfriend. She grew up in a lovely neighborhood in the 30s and 40s with Italians, Syrians. They all got along. They used to sing, play the guitar on their front stoop. And uh, they couldn't afford to live in the town next to Patterson. Uh, uh or buy a home so they rent it in patterson in the 50s then my brother who's older started to get uh, beat up and crime was increasing so they had to flee uh, most of my mother's family l- remained in patterson and they were mugged etc cetera, etc cetera. i had a great aunt who we try to convince to move in with us, but she wouldn't move, and she was surrounded by crime. And we would go and pick her up during the riots and get bottles thrown at us. I remember that as a little girl. I remember all of it. And um, so that's just an example of uh, what they refer to as white flight.
0: Yeah, it it sounds like uh, that's very similar to all the stories that you chronicle in the book here, uh, Jack.
1: Yeah, it's a prototypical story. And it was in cities big and small, all across northeast, north central, even into St. Louis, Los Angeles, San Francisco. Uh, Patterson, to say, all the New Jersey cities, Camden, Elizabeth, uh, Newark, especially uh, the same pattern. And uh, and the people who left didn't want to leave. They were leaving more than they were gaining. and uh, But they had to.
0: 800-848-9222 Pete is in New Jersey you got about 40 seconds Pete what's your question Yeah Mr. Frank it's at the big
2: level it's a flight of culture away from an anti-culture that's what it is
0: Is that an astute analysis Jack what do you think Yeah I think that's pretty much right on yeah absolutely well, uh, it didn't start
1: out that way, but that's the way it's become.
0: If uh, people want to learn more about this and uh, hear more of Jack's fascinating life story, you can check out the book Untenable. It's available on Amazon. Jack, let's do this again soon.
1: Hey, Frank. Excellent. and It's great to talk to people. We've got some real-life experiences.
0: And absolutely. Jack Cashel, Untenable is the book. All right. Uh, if you have other thoughts, uh, I'll be happy to take your call. We're going to let Jack get some sleep. 800 Until next hour, keep asking questions.